and not look at the uh, the overhead. If you got your Bibles, turn to uh, and uh, it'll be more important because I can't put the scripture up there for you. First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter sixteen, and we're going to cover verses five through twelve. First Corinthians chapter sixteen. And we are going to cover verses 5 through uh, 12. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is The Lord's Work. The Lord's Work. And, and when you see these verses, when we first see them, you're going to think, well, how in the world are you even going to get a, get a lesson out of them? So let's, let's read it. 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 12. Paul is again writing. He, he's finishing up the letter. Uh, it, it, when you get to the end of Paul's letters, sometimes it's almost like a P.S., you ever notice that? You get to the last chapter of his letters, he's just kinda, he kind of just starts throwing things in there. And, uh, and he's doing that now. He's just kind of covering a little bit of business. He says this, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So that's 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verses 5 through 12. Now, as I said, when you first read today's passage, it doesn't really get you excited, does it? Uh, it's not a lot of theology going on. Um, you know, Paul says, hey, I'm going over here, and I might come over here, and, and he might come there, but he might change his mind. Amen. You know, that. <laughs> That's, that's kind of what the passage is all about. So I, I kind of ask, you know, when I, when I study the Bible, as I said, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll ask myself questions. Um, and one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves with verses 5 through 12 is, well, what are they doing here? Um, why are these verses here? Uh, and, and, and is there, more importantly, is there anything that, uh, that we can learn from them? Um, if you go back and look at verses 8 through 10, there were two phrases or two words that really jumped out at me when I read this. I just kind of kept reading it several times. And the first one was in verse 9. Paul says, For a wide door for effective work has opened me. And then later on, he, he's talking about Timothy in verse 10, and he says, When Timothy comes, put him at ease, for he is doing the work of the Lord. So when Paul says, I'm working, I'm doing work, there's a work that is open for me. And then he says, Timothy is also doing the, the work of the Lord. And that, that phrase kind of jumped out at me, and I thought to myself, well, what, is, what does that mean? What is the work of the Lord? What, what is Paul referring to? And, and so that's the first thing I want to cover this morning, is when we see that phrase in the Bible, the work of the Lord, what, is that, what does that really mean? Um, now, some people, if you ask them that question, what does the work of the Lord mean, they would give you something very general. Um, I'll give you an example. This is a quote from a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, who's a, a very well-known uh, New Testament scholar. And he says this. He says, the work of the Lord 
is every act of love, gratitude, and kindness. Every work of art or music inspired by the love of God. Every minute spent teaching a handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care, nurture, comfort, and support for one's fellow human beings. And of course, every prayer, spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. That's N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope. Now, that's a very general definition, isn't it? In fact, in other words, a lot of people would just define the work of the Lord as just general Christian living. As you go throughout your day, you know, we should be doing the work of the Lord. And that really involves everything we do. And in one sense, that is true. But I want to be much more specific this morning. I think there's a much more specific or much more distinct definition of, of what the work of the Lord is. And I believe this. I believe the work of the Lord specifically refers to what believers do to advance the gospel amongst unbelievers and to establish believers in the gospel. In other words, I believe foundationally the work of the Lord is two things, evangelize and edify. Okay, Again, I'm not saying those other things aren't important, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but foundationally, when Paul refers to the work of the Lord, he's referring to two things, evangelize and edify. Evangelize unbelievers and edify or build up uh, believers. In fact, if you go back to the Gospels and you look at the work that Jesus did while he was here on this earth, you'll basically find that he did those two things, did he not? He evangelized and he edified. That's what he was all about. He was about preach, coming to save the lost. In fact, uh, Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and what? And save that which was lost. That's evangelized. But at the same time, we would see him constantly pulling his disciples aside, wouldn't we? Remember, he would talk in parables and, and everybody couldn't understand and he would take his disciples to the side and he said to you it's been given to know these things and he would exp he would build them up he would he would explain it to them in acts 1 3 after he had been raised from the dead and presented himself alive to them after many proofs it says he appeared to them during 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of god that's acts 1 3 so that's the two things that he that foundationally that's what he was all about evangelizing and edifying, evangelizing unbelievers, sharing the gospel, building up and edifying those who are already saved. So that's again what Jesus was doing, winning people to Christ and building them up in their understanding of the faith. Foundationally, that is what the work of the Lord is, is all about. Now, I bring this up for a couple of reasons. In our last chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in what? Anybody remember? The work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. So I think it's important as Christians that we understand, well, okay, if we're supposed... And by the way, what does that word abound mean? Anybody? If I said I was abounding in fish, what am I saying? I got more than enough, right? I mean, I got more than I need. I'm abounding in it. Well, Paul says, abound in the work of the Lord. 
abounding. I mean, you should, we should be working. I mean, we, we should be abounding in it, not just enough to get by, not just doing the minimum, but abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, I want to know, okay, what is that work of the Lord? And, I, and I'm telling you, foundationally, I believe it's evangelizing and, and edifying. So, again, why am I going to all this trouble to make this distinction this morning between the two? Well, here's why. Because I think it's something that you and I as a church and as church members need a constant reminder of, and that is that the work of the Lord is for every single Christian. You see, that's a truth we all believe, and and it's a truth we all would repeat, but it's something we need to be reminded of. Gospel ministry is for every single one of us, not for the pastor. See, I think there's a tendency in our churches to think, well, that's what we pay the pastor for. He's supposed to evangelize. He's supposed to build everybody up. But that's not, that's not what Scripture says. Um, if you got your Bibles, turn, flip over real quickly to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll give you a second to turn there since my PowerPoint isn't, isn't working on the, computer, on the screen up here this morning. Um, I'll give you a second to turn there. Ephesians chapter 4. There's a, there's a passage in there. Uh, where Paul is talking about the role of ministry uh, in the church. And he says this in verse 11, and we'll kind of walk through this very quickly. Starting in verse 11, he says this, And he, talking about Jesus, gave, and he's talking about giving gifts to the church, says he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, he gave the shepherds, which is another word for pastor, and he gave teachers. Okay, now again, these are gifts that uh, Jesus is giving to the church. So we ask the question, okay, what is their purpose? What is the purpose of these pastors and these teachers and these apostles and these prophets and these evangelists? Well, look at verse 12. The purpose of all those ministries is to equip the saints. Who's the saints? That's us. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up, the body of Christ. You see, we say this all the time, if you don't understand this, Pastor Henry's job is to equip you. That's his job. To equip you to go do the Lord's work. You are the one that's supposed to be evangelizing. You are the one that's supposed to be edifying. His job is to equip you. His job is to build you up, to give you the knowledge that you need, to give you the confidence that you need, to give you all the tools that you need to go out and perform the work of ministry. The work of ministry, Paul is saying, is not to be done by the clergy. It's not to be done by those guys. It's it's supposed to be done by us. His job is to build us up. And it's so easy for us to fall into the different thing, well, that's what we quote-unquote pay him to do. But that's not what Scripture says. His job is to build you and up. In other words, ministry, the Lord's work, is just to be done by regular people, not, not specialized people. And I want you to note, Paul isn't writing that, and, and just keep your eyes on that passage there for just a second. Paul isn't writing that just as a way of making everybody feel included. He's not doing it just to be nice so that everybody feels like they're part of the Lord's work. No, if you keep reading, what you'll find is the very health of the church depends on you and I doing ministry within the body. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says this. He says, 
he is, again, remember verse 11. He gave us pastors. He gave us teachers. What's their job? To build us up, to equip us for the work of the ministry. And look at verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, those are the things that happen to us when everybody is ministering to one another. When the body, when regular people are doing the Lord's work, edifying, evangelizing, we, we become mature, we become knowledgeable, we become unified. Everybody see that? Now, look at where we start out at. So that, Paul says, we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I, I was reading that. I've read that passage right there so many times that we'd no longer be children tossed about by wind and waves, surrounded. But I, want you, I, I thought about that this week again. I want you to think about that passage for a second. Do you understand children are helpless, right? Children need protection. They need people to defend them. They cannot defend themselves. In fact, without people to protect children, it's just a matter of time. They will perish. Now, that in itself is bad enough. If Paul had said so that we won't just be children, but he goes on, think about children now out there in the middle of the ocean, and they're surrounded by the winds and the waves that are buffeting the boat and going to overtake the boat. And now add on to that, there's these, uh, there's these men surrounding them, who are dangerous men, cunning men, crafty men, who also want to destroy them. Everybody with me? you got little children out on a boat in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by winds and waves, and if that's not enough, there are men surrounding them that want to destroy them. See, what Paul is describing there is an absolutely hopeless situation. It would be bad enough if they were just children. But now put them out in the middle of the ocean. Paul's saying this is hopeless. But see, that is the exact analogy that he uses to describe a church where people aren't doing ministry, where regular people aren't ministering to one another, where regular people aren't evangelizing and edifying. He says you're going to be like children that are tossed about in the wind and the waves, surrounded by crafty and cunning men. That's the exact analogy that used. That's how important it is, Paul says, to, that ministry is done by each and every member of, of the church. You go from that situation to strong men and women, unified, knowledgeable, mature. But that only happens, Paul said, when we're all doing the work of the Lord. Now, you may ask the question, well, what is, what's involved in this work of the Lord? Well, look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says this, rather... In other words, instead of leaving them out there in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by cunning and crafty men, Paul says, rather, and here's those five words, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And listen, when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, when Paul describes the work of ministry that we're supposed to be doing, he describes it with these five words, speaking the truth in love. That's what we should be doing to one another. You see, Paul has this idea. Now, I want you to understand what I'm saying here. Please understand this. I'm not downplaying the necessity of the general things that we need to do. 
Okay? Somebody today has got to pass out communion. Somebody has got to stack chairs. Somebody has got to change the toilet paper in the bathroom. Somebody's got to vacuum the carpet. Everybody with me? Those are all necessary things. Those are all needful things. So I'm not downplaying those types of things because they have to be done. They're all good and they're all necessary. But too many Christians, and listen to me closely, too many Christians view those things as the work of the ministry. You know, I I volunteer in the nursery. I, I mean, those kind of things have to be done. But too many people view that as the work of the ministry, and that's where they stop. Well, I change the toilet paper. I vacuum. I stack chairs. That's great. But I'm telling you, when you go back and look at context, Paul describing work of the ministry, he says, speaking the truth in love. That's the type of thing that we are to be doing. That's how Paul describes the Lord's work. Okay? So the picture here that Paul paints is of a church where everyone is speaking the truth in love to one another. Sometimes it's in a formal setting, like today. This morning, this would be considered a formal setting where you have a teacher who's speaking the truth in love. But beyond that is, is, should be hundreds and hundreds of these little informal settings where, where you're speaking the truth to her and she's speaking the truth to him. In our conversations, we, sh- we should be talking about the gospel, talking about the Bible. Somebody's got a problem. I've used this before, uh, this analogy before, but I'll never forget this. I had a friend of mine uh, lives in Fort Lauderdale, and they go to one of the uh, Calvary Chapel down there, and there's like 10,000 people. And there's so many people that the the clergy can't keep up with, the, the, the staff can't keep up with all the counseling. So what they did is they went out and found mature couples in the church, just regular people, and they trained them to be counselors to help, you know, everybody with me to kind of help offload some of the counseling load. And I asked him, I remember asking him, I said, well, man, how do you, you know, what do you, when people come to you with all these problems, you know, how do you, how do, you do that? I mean, how do you, and, and I remember him saying, what the way they train you is every answer you give comes from that Bible. You never give your own opinion. It's not, I think you should do this. It's you point them to the Bible and say, this is what the Bible says you should do. Okay? If they don't want to listen, that's their business. But it's not about your opinion, it's about the Bible. See, that's what our conversations. you got a problem and somebody's offloading a problem, how do you respond? You respond with the Word of God. You speak the truth in love. See, that's this idea of what's going on in this church. In other words, your conversation is filled with ministry. See, that's what Paul is, is talking about when he describes the work of the ministry or the work of the Lord. Listen, we are, I don't know if y'all understand this, but in this church we are extremely blessed. We have got great preaching and teaching that comes from the front. Everybody, we agree with that, but that's not enough. That is not enough. That is not what church is supposed to be about. We're not supposed to come in, hear great preaching and teaching, and go home and say, well, no. Their job is to equip us. Our job is to minister amongst one another. We should be counseling one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another. That's our job. See, it's just not enough. All Christians are to evangelize, and all Christians are to edify by speaking the truth in love. That is the work of the Lord. Foundationally, that's the work of the Lord. 
And, and, and as I said, this is absolutely vital for the health of the church. If River of Life is going to be a strong, mature, unified church, it doesn't depend on Henry Jones. It depends on me and you. That's what Paul said. That's our job. That's not his job. It's our job. And that's the time, I think that's the thing, if we're not careful, we will forget about. Unity, knowledge, and maturity depend on every Christian doing the work of the ministry. Now, this morning, I said all that. Now I'm going to turn, so turn in your Bible back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Let's go back to verses 5 through 12. And, and you're going to say, okay, what does all that have to do with Paul saying, that, hey, I'm going to go here and I might go over here, and he might come or he might change his mind and he might not. What does that have to do with all this? Well, this morning I want to give you six principles, six principles from today's passage Six principles to follow when you are doing the Lord's work, okay? That I'm going to get out of Paul's little passage there. Before I get there, I want to read, and just hold, that, hold your place right there. I want to read a, a passage from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, and I'll just read this to you. We studied this several months ago when we first started going through this book. Paul is writing to the church, and listen to what he says. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and now someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for judgment day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, remember what we're talking about here, right? Who's responsible for doing the Lord's work? Every single one of us. But Paul is saying that one day, your work that you do is going to be tested. It's going to be judged. Okay? And he goes on. He says this, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Jesus Christ survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Listen, I've said this hundreds of times before. My motives for doing what I'm doing right now are important. One day, I'm either going to receive a reward, a reward for all the last 10 years of teaching, or it's going to be burned up because I did it just because I wanted somebody to pat me on the back and say how great you are. You see, if you're doing this so somebody can pat you on the back and say how great you are, you've already got your reward. Yes or no? But if you're doing it for Him, if you're doing it to, to further the kingdom of God, if you're doing it for the right reasons, the Bible says you'll be rewarded for that. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to be judged. What I do, what you do, it's going to be judged. That's, that's, what Paul, that's what Paul says. Now, how can I make sure that I'm doing it the right way? You know, I was thinking this week, we're about to embark on a, on a building out back here. Hopefully going to be breaking ground on this in just a few weeks. And if you've ever built anything, and I'm sure most people here have been, maybe you've built a house or you've built something, you'll find out that there's some, some basic things about the building process that you've got to learn. Number one, you've got to have a, you got to have a plan, do you not? You've got to have a set of plans that you go down and you think this thing through and you lay it out. But after you've got the plan, you've also learned that you've got to build it according to some standard or some code, Right? Because what happens is you can, you can build that thing and, and put stuff up and all. guess who comes out to check it? The inspector. 
the inspector comes out to judge what you've done. And, and, if, and, if, and if you don't do it according to the plan and you don't do it according to the code, guess what? It won't pass inspection. And I can tell you, you can work, you can work, you can build a house and work harder than the guy building the house next door. You can put in more hours, right? You can, you can sweat more. You can, you can put in more effort. But if you're not doing it according to code, it won't pass inspection, okay? I mean, it's just, it's just going to be a waste of your, of your time. See, I'm, in, I'm imploring you this morning to do the work of the Lord, but you've got to do it right way, right? I mean, one day it's going to be inspected, and I want it, at that day I want it to pass inspection. I want it to be done for the, for the right reasons. Again, God will inspect our work. 2 Timothy 2.15, listen to this one. We've, we all know this scripture. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be Anybody know that next word? Ashamed. Man, I, wouldn't that be terrible to, to get there and to be ashamed of what? I don't want to be ashamed. I want to be, I want to be the opposite of that. I want to be proud to lay that before him and say, I did this for you. You know, I, I think when he gives you that reward, we talk about we'll take that crown or whatever it is and we'll cast it and say, man, this is nothing compared to what you... But, but I, nobody wants to be ashamed. So how can we do this work of the Lord and make sure it'll pass inspection? Well, again... Um, we want to do it the Lord's way, uh, so how do, we, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to give you six principles. Number one, and we're going to get this from Paul today, you need a plan, okay? If you're going to do something for the Lord, you need a plan. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 16, look at verses 5 through 6 and what Paul says. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia... And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Listen, when Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, he's in the city of Ephesus, okay? And, and, and things are really happening there. You, if you read verse 8 and 9, Paul says again, we just read it a few minutes ago, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul is in the, in the city of Ephesus when he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. And he's saying, hey, I'm coming to see you. I'm going to stop and see you as I, as I pass through Macedonia. But Paul at that moment is in Ephesus. And by the way, they are, things are hopping there, right? I mean, there's a lot going on in Ephesus. The church is growing, but Paul is always doing what? He's always looking ahead. Where do I go next? What do I do next when God is done with me here? At the same time he's engaged in his current work, he's got a vision, he's looking around for what other work needs to be done. Okay, And I think that's important. You and I, I don't think, should ever get to the point where we just got our head down with blinders on and all we see is what we're doing now. I mean, what we're doing now is important. And we'll get to that in just a second. But we should be looking around. There's something that needs to be done over there. There's something that needs to be done over there. Planning ahead. That's just the way Paul was. Listen to, let me read this verse, a couple of verses out of Romans 15. Getting now at the end of the, the letter to the Romans. Paul says this, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. By the way, Paul is now writing a letter to the Romans. Guess where he is? He's probably in Corinth. So he's made it back to Corinth. Now he's writing a letter to the Romans. And he says again, 
since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, he's talking around, talking about Corinth, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So Paul is now in Corinth, and guess where he's looking? He's looking to Spain. He said, man, there's a country over there. I, man, there's, there's opportunities there for, for the gospel. I'm going to be going to Spain. So he writes to, to the Roman church. He says, hey, I'll, I'll pass through Italy on my way to Spain, but I'm going to Spain. Oh, yeah, by the way, before I come to you, I've got to go to Jerusalem. Always planning ahead, always looking ahead to see what, what needs to be done. You and I should do the same. Again, we can't just go around with blinders on. We need to be planning. We need to be looking ahead. I can tell you as a church staff and as a church board, that's one of the things that we do, right? Is we don't just, man, everything's going pretty good now. What about a year from now? What about five years from now? What about 10 years from now? Where do we want to be? How, you know, what, what can we do to prepare for those times? So we need to look ahead and plan and, and see what isn't being done and, and plan to do it. Number two, the second principle for, that we can do to, to do the Lord's work right is you need to prepare now for that work that you're going to do later. Remember, look, go back and read verses 8 through 9 again. Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are uh, many adversaries. Listen, I don't know this morning, there may be some people here that are fairly young Christians, some, uh, maybe, uh, you know, maybe you're at a point in your life where you really want to do something for the Lord. You, you don't, not, maybe you're not sure what it is, but you're wanting to do something. I think it's important to plan, okay? But I also think it's important that you understand that where you are now is always the proving ground. You see, planning ahead is great. Planning ahead is necessary, but you can't just be a planner, right? You've got, you got to be a doer. You've got to be willing to do what's put in front of you today because the work that you're doing today is preparing you for the work that God has given you in the future. I was thinking back this week. I started teaching this class about 10 years ago, um, and I was in my early 40s, and I started, and I thought, you know, but I thought back over time, I can tell you, find anybody that's doing something. They're teaching the Bible. They're, they're in prison ministry. They're doing something. And I'll tell you, you can go back and look in time and you'll see where God prepared them. When Kathy and I were first married, uh, we would go to the nursing home. Every Sunday we'd go to the nursing home and we would wheel everybody over into this little chapel and I would stand, I was, I was uh, 20, 21 years old and I would stand in that little chapel and I'd teach them for about, 10 minutes, maybe about 15 minutes, you know, just something very short. But that was, a, I didn't know it at the time, but that was a preparation. The Lord said, okay, here's a ministry, do it. And I, every Sunday I'd have to prepare. And you just, and I wasn't very good at it. Because at least looking at them, they didn't pay much attention to me. I, I don't know if it was me or if it was them. I ain't quite figured that out yet, but I wasn't very good at it. But that was what we did for that period of time. Over time, you, you teach children in Sunday school. I taught youth. I, everybody with me? You see, the work you do today is preparing you for something. You don't know what God's got down the road for you. 
but you do what He's given you today, and you do it with, with all your heart. I think about a story I read one time about a, about a man by the name of William Carey. Um, and if you don't know who William Carey is, William Carey was a great missionary. He was the first gospel missionary to go into the country of India. I mean, which if you, India is a huge country. Uh, Hinduism, whatever it is, they, they worship multiple gods. And, and William Carey is the first man to go into that country with the gospel. But William Carey, do you know what his job was? He was a cobbler. He repaired shoes. That was, his, that was what he did. But, ha, that, but he had this desire. To, he planned ahead. Everybody with me? He wanted to take the gospel. He had this desire to take the gospel to other countries. But all he was was a shoe cobbler. That, that's all he did. So what he would do while he sat and repaired shoes in his little shop, this was back in the 1700s, as he repaired shoes in his little shop, he had a map on his wall. And he would pray over that map. And he would cry over that map. And he would study that map. And then on his, in his spare time, he taught himself Latin. He taught himself Greek. He volunteered at his local church and even pastored a church. He, he, he read about other cult. Everybody with me? He was preparing. He was getting ready. And whatever the Lord put in front of him to do, that's what he did. And then one day when he was 32 years old, God said, it's time. And he packed his family up, and he got on a boat, and he went to India, and he opened that country to the gospel for every, every other missionary that's gone there since. I mean, what a, what a great man of God. And he started as a shoe cobbler. He planned, and he prepared. Whatever God put in front of him, that's what he, he did, and he accomplished great things for the Lord. When I think about those type of stories, I think about two men in the Bible, one named Philip and one named Stephen. And I guarantee you, if I said this morning, tell me, tell me one story you know about Philip. Probably 99% of you would say, well, Philip was the one, there was a unit going by. Yes or no? What about Stephen? I'd say, tell me one story you know about Stephen. And everybody would say, well, Stephen was stoned. Right? And he preached this great sermon. He looked up into heaven, and I see the heavens open, and Jesus standing by the right hand of God. That's the story you know. But you see, in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, there's another story about them. It says this, then the twelve, you remember in the early church, the church is growing, they got all these widows and stuff, and people need to be taken care of. And the apostles were like, man, this is, y'all want us, to, basically, we don't have time to deal with all that. We got to devote ourselves to prayer and study. And so it says this in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 5. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. You see, they were chose, chosen early on. We need you to wait these tables. We need you to be servants. We need you to take care of these widows. See, they, I, I'm sure those men had something burning in them. The Bible says Stephen was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. I'm sure he wanted to go out and preach. But they said, no, we need you to take care of the widows and the orphans and distribute the money and take care of this business. Everybody with me? That's what was put in front of them first, and that's what they, what they did. Again, God, God didn't just... Listen, God, he's a smart guy. If you ain't figured that out. And he's a planner, by the way. The Bible tells us that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. All this stuff has been planned out for a long time. 
God doesn't just take you and throw you over the wall and say, man, I hope this guy gets it done. No. God doesn't work that way. God plans. God prepares. God preps. Okay? Again, he's not just crossing his fingers hoping it all works out. So God has got a job for you. He's going to put things in front of you today to prepare you. He's going to let you walk before you, you run. You've got to be willing to do that. In other words, faithfulness at your current level of responsibility qualifies you for a greater level of responsibility. You, we, Matthew 25, the, the parable of the talents, his, his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Are you faithful with what God has given you today? Number three, we, things that we need to do, think about to do the Lord's work and do it right. You need to be flexible. Okay, this is an obvious one. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or spend the winter. For I don't want to just see you in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. And then he throws in four very, very important words. If the Lord wills, or if the Lord permits. You see, there are some Christians who might say something like this. Well, you know, I know exactly what God has got planned for me. I've got certain gifts and I've got certain talents and I know that I'm perfectly suited to do a particular job or a particular ministry and I'm not going to do anything else until that time comes. I can tell you that is absolute baloney. Okay? That certainly was not Paul's attitude. He planned and he strategized as we all should do, but at the same time he never forgets the most important thing, if the Lord wills. See, I think planning is right. I think strategizing is right. Uh, As a church, we do that. But can I tell you, we also understand if the Lord wills. That we may get to a point and all of a sudden we're planning to go left and God says, no, I need you to go right. I mean, he tends to work those kind of things out and you have to be flexible. Number four, or five, I can't remember which one I'm on now. Four, listen to this one. Expect and accept opposition. Expect and accept opposition. Look at verses 8 through 9. Paul says again, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Listen, do you understand? Paul's in Ephesus, right? I said that earlier. Do you understand what Ephesus was like? They had a a temple there called the Temple uh, of Diana. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was so idolatry was rampant in that city. Prostitution, they employed over a thousand temple prostitutes, a thousand in that temple. Legalized prostitution was rampant. Sexual perversion was all over that that city. They had a crowd of Jews roaming the city trying to cast demons out of people. They had another crowd of Jews going around trying to kill Christians. I mean, this place, is, this place is a mess, right? They got racism, they got superstition, they got heathenism, paganism, they got idolatry, they got demon possession, you name it. It's going on. And Paul says, man, this place is awesome, right? I mean, that's basically what he's saying. This is, this, there is so much ministry to do. Everybody with me? That was his attitude. I can't leave here. I mean, how different from that is his attitude from ours sometimes, right? We run into a little opposition. Oh, this may not be the Lord's will. 
It's almost like we just expect him just pave the way. Paul saw, he, he not only expected opposition, he accepted it. He didn't see that as a, as a bad thing. In fact, listen to his term, his term, a wide door for effective work. I mean, he just, he looked at all of those adversaries, he looked at all of that sin, and he said, man, I, I can't leave here. Why would I leave here? There is so much work uh, to be done. And again, I think that's very different from the way many Christians today think. So he's in Ephesus. He begins to teach the Word of God. People begin to get saved. They get disciples. They go out, by the way. If you go to the book of Revelation, you've got seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Ephesus fed that. People from Ephesus went out and started those churches. The Word of God spread all over Asia Minor from Ephesus, from the work that, uh, that Paul did. People started burning their cult books. They, they wouldn't buy their... They, they had people in the city that would sell these little idols of Diana, goddess Diana, and people would put them on their, their, their carriages or their, or their chariots or whatever, you know, and it would swing from the rearview mirror. And, and they were making a lot of money on all this, right? And all of a sudden, these people started getting saved. They quit buying them. And, and the merchants that were selling these little idols and stuff got so angry that they, there was a, almost a citywide riot over the whole thing. All because one man, all because one man not only expected opposition, he accepted it. He said, that's no big deal to me. Okay? I mean, that, what, what, a, what an attitude he had. I want to, later, Paul will write 2 Corinthians. And in the, in the letter to 2 Corinthians, he describes his experience in Ephesus. I want you to listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says this, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. He's talking about Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now listen to verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was... What a, what a, what a sentence this next one is. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Paul said, all that opposition, all that stuff that came against me, you know the purpose of that was to make me rely on God, not me. You see, so many of us, we see the opposition, we see the adversaries, and we look at ourselves and think, man, I, I can't handle that. Well, you're right. You can't handle it. The whole point of that is to make you trust God, to make you lean on God, on His power, on His strength. And see, then the work that gets done, guess who gets the glory? It's not about you, it's about... It's about, it's about Him. And again, there is a real correlation there. When opposition arises in a work that you're trying to do, it causes you to rely not in yourself, uh, but in God. And by the way, the greater the opposition, the more you trust in God, right? And the more God's power can flow. It's, a, it's an exciting thing. Number five, rely on others. Look at verses 10 through 11. Paul says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Listen, Paul literally, the man had no sense of ambition. No sense of ambition. All he cared about, in, in Philippians 1, I won't read it because we've run out of time, but Paul says there were people literally preaching the gospel while he was in prison, they'd go out and preach the gospel just to get back at him for some reason, to make him feel bad. Paul says, I don't care as long as they're preaching the gospel, as long as Jesus is lifted up. Didn't he say that? 
as long as Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. I mean, he had no, no, it wasn't about getting the credit. It, it, Paul understood that we are all in this for the cause of Christ, and that is what's important. Not who gets the credit, not who's over this person or none of that kind of None of that kind of stuff. Paul was just worried that Christ, his kingdom, his message, his gospel be exalted. So he was always willing to work with other people. Number six. One more thing. comes out of verse 12. Let the Spirit do the leading, not you. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly, strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Listen, do you understand Paul was a man of authority? Was he not? He was a man of authority, yet he understood that in ministry, it's not about the Spirit putting one man there, and that man tells everybody what to do. Paul understood the Spirit has to work in everybody. He has to work in me, he has to work in you, and if we're going to work in this ministry together, I can't dominate and I can't dictate. That's not how this thing works. Christ is the head. Christ is the head. And, and so he's going to work individually in each person. And Paul says, look, I urged Apollos, but he didn't want to do it. Okay, I didn't force him. He'll come when he has, when he has opportunity. So we've got to be sensitive to that when we're working with other people. Don't, again, don't dictate, don't dominate. Let the Spirit do, of God do what he does and, and, and be patient. I want to close with a story. There was a, a preacher in England... Uh, in the early 1800s, uh, a man by the name of Sidney Smith. And um, at that time, the Methodist church was just exploding in England. And so he was asked one day, he was interviewed by a reporter, and they, they said, Mr. Smith, how do you account for the success of the Methodist revival in, in England? As I said, it was the early 1800s. And I love this quote. This is how he answered that question. He says, the amper, answer is simple, sir. They are all at it, and they are all always at it. Man, I really like that. I'm going to say that again. They are all at it. What's he talking about? The work of the ministry, the Lord's work. They're all at it, and they don't ever stop. They're always at it. See, I hope that can be said about River of Life. If we want River of Life to be a knowledgeable church, a mature church, and a unified church, doesn't depend on staff, doesn't depend on clergy, it depends on you and I. And I hope that one day they can say that about this church. What, how do you account for that church in little old Walkula County doing the things that that did? And one of us will be able to say, well, let me tell you, sir, they're all at it, and they don't ever stop. They're always at it. Let's pray. Father.